National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, December 13th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to explore European security policy today. Most people understand the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, has a clearly organized and well-planned security policy. Those policies are constantly being assessed, altered, and impacted by crises around the world. NATO security policy is a living, breathing set of principles that keep the alliance focused on the core functions. But many people don't know that the European Union also has a set of security policies, and those policies are also being constantly updated based on real-world crises and opportunities. Each nation inside the European Union also has their own security policies, and Germany may be one of the most important to consider based on the size and importance of Germany's robust economy. So today we're going to explore NATO and EU security policy, and we'll delve down to look more closely at Germany's policies in this area as well. We'll also examine some of the critical actions happening today across Europe and even here in the United States that impact both NATO and the e- and EU security policy. With us to assess these topics is Dr. Constanze Stelzenmüller. Dr. Constanze Stelzenmüller is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., A German native herself, she's an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy, as well as international law and human rights. From 2019 to 2020, Dr. Stelzenmüller held the Kissinger Chair on Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress, and from 2014 to 2019, served as the inaugural Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Prior to joining Brookings, she directed the Berlin office of the German Marshall Fund of the United States and later served as Senior Transatlantic Fellow with the organization heading the Transatlantic Trends Program. Dr. Stelzenmüller's work in the think tank sphere follows a distinguished career in journalism, including the role of defense and international security editor in the political section of Die Zeit from 1994 to 2005. She has contributed to a variety of publications and writes a monthly column for the Financial Times and a frequent commentator on American and European news outlets. Dr. Constanze Stelzenmüller, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. And, and where are you sitting today? Right now, I'm sitting at my Swiss cousin's dining room table in Zurich, the capital. No, not the capital. I'm sorry. A very big city in Switzerland. Goodness, the capital is Bern. Do, do you I'm, have, visiting, I'm visiting family. Do you have actual winter over in Switzerland right now? Um, there is snow and a lot of rain. There's climate change here, too. Normally, it would be much more snowy. Yeah, I, when I think of Switzerland, I think of mountains and skiing and uh, and whatnot. But I yep. know that the glaciers, even on uh, the Swiss Alps, are melting pretty fast right now. But the but the Alps are still pretty impressive. I came here on a train from Vienna, and it's really quite something to be barreling through the mountains. So that was fun. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. Seltzenmuller, whenever I have guests on the show who are from a think tank, I always start off by asking about that think tank. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Brookings Institution? Sure. Um, so, the Brookings Institution was founded in 1916, 1916, um, so 100 and more than 106 years ago, um, by a retail magnate millionaire from St. Louis, Missouri, Mr. Brookings who felt that the Woodrow Wilson administration needed more scientific advice, particularly on economics. Remember, this was the progressive era, and people thought that they could quantify um, policy issues and and help improve government and public policy that way. And for the longest time, the Brookings Institution was a bunch of economists, um, and our biggest claim to fame is that we did the numbers for the Marshall Plan, which, of course, was America's incredibly generous plan to with loans and grants to rebuild Europe's economies, including my own country's, Germany's economy, after World War II. So you've held also a number of really interesting positions during your professional career, and you started your, your, your career in journalism with Die Zeit. You've also written for the Financial Times, which is a, a really impressive uh, uh, paper. How, how different is it writing for news outlets as opposed to writing for a think tank? Uh, can you tell us how you shift well, between I the should, two formats? Sure. Happy to do that. And I should probably, I shouldn't have stopped at explaining what we do in, in the 1940s. 
At this point, um, the Brookings Institution is the oldest and biggest think tank in Washington. Uh, numerous others have sprung up. But what I think uh, is our distinctive mark is that we are very academic in, in the way we go about things. We write books, we write long policy papers. We're the only think tank that has a .edu ending to our emails, like universities. And we cover all subjects from um, local and regional politics to economic politics to foreign policy and to global policies. So we're really 360 degrees and we have about 350 researchers um, on, in, the, in the middle of Washington, DC. That's a big, big institution. And a lot of this is another distinguishing thing that people may not know. In the American system, as you know, there are a lot of political appointees when a new administ presidential administration comes in. And very often they're recruited from think tanks, including from places like Brookings. I think we lost about 20 colleagues to the Biden administration. But since, to answer your question about journalism, it's, um, it's both similar and not. So journalism, you know, you sort of tend to look at issues that are really burning concurrent that sort of push themselves, as it were, onto the front pages of newspapers, whereas think tanks try to take the long view. We have found increasingly that governments are caught up in, in the, the urgency of the moment and find it really hard today um, to sit back and say, let's think about what this or that policy will look like in 20 years. And so think tanks feel that it's their job to provide that analytical backdrop to, without political fear or favor, go through the pros and cons of policies, um, analyze them, critique them, and if we're doing our job, then propose ways of doing it better. That's not to say we're apolitical. Some Washington political think tanks are, you know, have a very distinct political bent. Brookings happens to be very centrist which means that people on the on the right think that we're left-wing and people who are very left-wing think that we're right-wing, but yeah. can't be helped. Yeah, I, I would frame Brookings as one of those places that's that's pretty nonpartisan, frankly. I mean, it's it's a very fact-based, data-driven yeah. approach, yeah. Uh, much like CSIS yeah. well, and some of the other places. We are a 501c3 organization, yeah. which means that we, we are bipartisan uh, by our statute. That means, in practical terms, we could never do things like paid advocacy, which there are some think tanks that do that, but then they don't have the 501c3 uh, tax status. Yeah. But so, so let me ask you this. Uh, why did you choose to study and specialize in the transatlantic and European policy area? What was it about that area that, that fascinated you? I mean, some people choose to study the Middle East or China or Russia. Why, <laughs> why transatlantic security? Well, I mean, for that, I have to be a little bit personal, if I may. Um, as I've already told you that I'm German, um, as are my parents. Um, my parents were war children, and my father was drafted into the Wehrmacht, the Nazi army, at the age of 16, mm. uh, from a school that was um, very anti-Nazi. And in fact, um, one of his stories was that my grandmother was called by the SS. She was a librarian and a widow was called by an SS recruiter who said, you have two sons, we need them. And she had the presence of mind to say, um, sorry, sir, they've just they've joined the Navy. And then she called <laughs> up their, their boarding school, which, as I said, was very anti-Nazi, and said, join the Navy, Navy at once, the SS is looking for you. And, and so, and my dad had the good luck, unlike my uncle, who became a Russian POW, my, my dad had, had the good luck to become an American POW and was very well treated and um, had affection and respect for America for the rest of his life. And then when he became a uh, diplomat, was we were posted to Washington in the 1970s. That's where I spent four years of my childhood. So in many ways, this was you know, a very familiar country. My parents also took the view, you know, we're not here to be Germans, we're here to see the country. They were adventurous. Uh, we went uh, down more canyons than I care to remember. Um, and uh, rode across lakes and all sorts of uh, stuff. Um, so every museum in the country. And, and then I went to graduate school here as well. I spent three wonderful years at graduate school. And so, you know, having, if you grow up as a foreign service brat, brat, you care about foreign and security policy deeply. I didn't want to join the diplomatic service. Uh, I did want, really want to become a journalist. And from there, as, as I think I tried to explain earlier, to think tanking was a natural progression because at some point you want to go beyond the sort of reporting the moment 
and dig deeper into the root causes and, and think about policy solutions. So I, I, I think of myself as somebody who is a, you know, German by passport, deeply European with profound affection for America, but I'm actually also very interested in global strategy issues and the relationship between the West and the world, which right now is not that great. No, yeah, we have some challenges right now. We'll come to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that is my yeah. plan for the show today, indeed. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Constanza Stelzenmüller from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing European and German defense policy challenges and opportunities. But first, we're going to dive into part of the core topic, and that's uh, both NATO and EU security policy. Uh, Dr. Stelzenmüller, can you can you explain to us the, what the difference is between NATO sure. and EU security policy? And I say that, sure. uh, and maybe we stay at the high level for, to begin with, but most EU members are part of NATO. So there's some obvious Absolutely. overlap here between the two organizations, but there are some unique differences that are very important between the NATO members and the EU members on, on defense and security policy. Okay, so to our listeners, um, we're going into European Security Policy 101, um, so bear with us. <laughs> That's perfect, because uh, I need a refresher. <laughs> we'll try and make this interesting. Um, look, the NATO alliance was created in 1949, when it was becoming clear that there would be a Cold War between the, the, the Warsaw Pact, which was headed by the Soviet Union, um, and, and, the Western, um, the, the, and the Western nations. It was very clear that the Soviet, Soviet Union had uh, imperial designs, um, was a source of, of danger to the, the nations of Western Europe that just, had just come out of the war. And so this was a defense alliance between America and Europe that was supposed to prevent the Soviets from gaining more ground in, in Europe right after the war. Interestingly enough, um, the Germans were not originally part of, of the founding group, um, six nations, I believe. Um, sorry, no, it was 12. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm very bad at this kind of thing. Um, and I'm still slightly, slightly jet-lagged. Um, the Germany was, in fact, had just given itself a basic law, a constitution, which did not provide for armed forces. It was never supposed to have armed forces again, having been a major player in World War I and responsible for World War II, and of course responsible for Holocaust. And then by the time the mid-50s rolled around, Allies and the, and the Americans decided that this was not going to work because the eastern border of West Germany was, of course, the, the inter-German border with East Germany, which was communist. And if the Soviet Union decided to invade, which was one of the basic assumptions of security planning at the time, then that border would have to be defended and it couldn't be defended forever by Western allies. Remember that Western Germany was still under occupation um, and there were troops there in large numbers um, from America, uh, the UK and France. Um, one of the reasons why so many West Germans of my generation and older speak fairly fluent English is that there were so many Americans and British soldiers there. And even more importantly, they had phenomenal radio stations, <laughs> which played much cooler music than German radio stations did. And a lot of GIs who retired, uh, especially um, African-American GIs, founded legendary jazz clubs um, in and around uh, the major garrison towns in West Germany. A huge cultural influence, not to be not, not to be overestimated. Anyway, I digress. Um, we were, so NATO over throughout the Cold War, so until the fall of the war in 1989, was a defensive alliance against the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, which meant that its its job was to defend the territory of its members until um, against a an, an attack um, by the Soviet Union. In, then the wall came down in 1999. I was at graduate school in, in, in America at the time, um, something that I, at age 27, would have thought, frankly, impossible. We had all grown up to think that this would never happen. And then in the course of the 1990s, we saw a gradual enlargement of NATO. Um, most of the, the, so in 1991, the Warsaw Pact was dissolved, and in fact, the Soviet Union dissolved by December 1991. And a lot of these countries who had not 
been members of the Warsaw Pact and allies of the Soviet Union of their own free will, immediately wanted to join NATO. And that happened throughout the, the, the 1990s and 2000s. And I, think, I believe NATO now has 32 members, if I'm not completely mistaken, the European Union 27. Many of the same countries also joined the European Union. And over the course of time, especially after the attacks of 9-11 um, on New York and Washington from by the, by the, the Afghanistan-based Taliban, um, NATO became to believe that it would have to switch from territorial defense because Russia was no longer a threat to expeditionary warfare and to preventing terrorist attacks like the one, um, like the one on, on 9-11. And so really the entire mission of the alliance shifted from the territorial deterrence and defense uh, to, in, to interventions and expeditionary warfare. And we have now with Russia's war of uh, full-scale war of aggression, its invasion of Ukraine on February 24, um, 2022, last year, um, have practically come full circle because we're now returning to defense and deterrence against Russia. It's something of a historical irony. That's the NATO side of this. Um, the EU side is, is the following. The EU was created really um, in order to I think, maximize trade and economic exchanges and services among the war-torn nations of Eastern Europe. Again, like NATO, it enlarged in the 1990s and 2000s. It is now an immense bloc with enormous trading power. It is the single most important trading partner of, of America next to China and also of China. Um, and it is it was after 9-11, but also after the Iraq war, that the Europeans decided that they also needed a security policy, that the European Union could not exist solely as a trading bloc. So in fact, and this is something not many Americans know, and in fact, not many Europeans know, um, the, the, the Lisbon Treaty, um, which is the foundation of the European Union, contains an Article 42.7, which also contains a mutual defense clause, um, which is very similar to NATO's Article 5, which is the bedrock article, which says, when one of us is attacked, all of us are attacked. And I will end with, with, uh, with two points, if I may. The war in Ukraine has really motivated Europeans to increase their defense spending, um, which they have promised to NATO anyway. But they have also set up a European Union defense procurement fund, the European Peace Facility, somewhat weirdly named, um, which is a joint fund to procure ammunition and missiles for Ukraine. Um, and the the, the one, one last thing that a lot of Americans don't know, the only time Article 5 of the NATO Treaty has ever been invoked so far was the day after 9-11, right. on September 12, 2001, by the Europeans on behalf of America. The Bush administration actually wasn't sure it wanted that, um, but the Europeans insisted, and so that was the first and only time so far it's had to be invoked. Yeah, we actually had uh, not a, not a, not too many Americans know this, but we actually had uh, NATO allied uh, air power, uh, tactical air power, come over from Europe Indeed. and fly combat air patrols over the eastern part of the United States to help defend airspace. That's right. It's fascinating. That's absolutely right. fascinating. Yeah. So, of those two policy frameworks between NATO and the European Union, which one do you think has the greatest impact on the defense policy of the individual Euro European nations, and and which one? kind of drives defense production decisions more? Is it NATO or the EU? Uh, or, or decisions on investments in intelligence capabilities and, and operations? Or even drives decisions where military forces might be deployed mm -hmm. around the world or even inside Europe uh, based on perceived unquestionably, security? Yeah. Unquestionably NATO. Okay. Right? Okay. That, that is, and, and here is why. Because, again, the, the, the European policy framework really consists of the following. It consists of a quite decent and updated security strategy paper, which is fine. Uh, the EU has a military cell, which liaises with NATO, and it now has this European peace facility. And the EU has also undertaken missions, usually um, peace and stabilization missions, many of them maritime um, in, the, in the Mediterranean, and um, I believe also near the Horn of Africa. Yep, counter-piracy operations. Um, exactly. Um, 
And, and all of these things are important, and I think we're important for the Europeans to do. But now contrast that with what NATO does, which is NATO has now had for its turning 75 um, in the coming year, and, and that will be celebrated with a, a July summit in Washington, D.C. And in those 75 years, it has developed with its now 32 member states a, an extraordinary system of force generation and force... Um, What's the other word? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking. Force generation procedures and force deployment procedures wow. okay. that lacks um, a comparison anywhere in the world. No other alliance anywhere has the ability to bring together 32 nations of very disparate sizes and capabilities um, and, and to roll them out and to plan together. I mean, in all fairness, we have to say that after the end of the Cold War, for, for a long time, we thought we weren't going to need much of this anymore. Right. And especially we wouldn't need regional defense planning because the Russians weren't, weren't going to attack us anymore. And we have had to learn after the Russian invasion of Ukraine that, um, that this was mistaken and that we were going to have to go back to that, which we're currently doing. But the... Um, the it, it is... I mean, think of this, if you will... As it's like a surgical team, right? That has been working together for a long time. Everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. There are checklists and protocols, but really it's now part of everybody's muscle memory. Yeah. No other alliance in the world has that, and nothing that the EU does, as important as those the things it does do are, nothing compares to that. And that is why that is what gives NATO its punch. I will add, though, um, that's just to be realistic here, not all of those 32 member states of NATO are of the same military weight. And obviously, America, the superpower, counts, you know, is the backbone of, its all, of it all. And, and for two, two important reasons. Um, one, because of its unsurpassed conventional capabilities, meaning non-nuclear weapon systems, and, and, and just the sheer size and modernity of its troops which small European nations just can't, can't replicate, simply also because technology has become so complex and so expensive that almost no country, unless it's very wealthy, can afford, afford full-spectrum forces anymore. Right. Um, so the American backbone here is, of course, crucial. And the other element, of, of course, is nuclear weapons. There are in, the alliance has three nuclear weapons powers, the France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. But... Um, in truth, the U.S. nuclear uh, capability is what counts. Yeah, that, 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 and the Euro European Union doesn't have that. That's a good, that's a good point. And, and and my understanding is that within the NATO construct, uh, because you can't, not every nation can do everything. That some nations have specialized in certain key core Absolutely. capabilities for the defense yes. alliance. Yeah. Yes. So, so a bunch of things have happened here that I think that's also important for listeners to understand because you so often hear the critique that, that Europeans have underspent um, on defense. And, and I think, you know, on a superficial level and even below a superficial level, one has to say guilty as charged, right? <laughs> um, but, but I think I'd like to contextualize that a little bit. Um, which is that this is a relationship, a decades-old relationship of codependency, which, in all fairness, the United States somewhat gently encouraged yep. for a variety of reasons. A, because the money that the Europeans weren't spending on defense went to fund social policies, which bought social peace. Right? Social peace is not irrelevant for defense deterrence. Right. And, and, and security, right? Um, those underpinnings are really important. Then the, there was the, the United States generally, it's not unfair to say the US generally wasn't terribly un, un, un enthusiastic about the Europeans developing a two independent defense industrial base. And that I think made us dependent in ways that ultimately weren't all that productive for America either. Mm. Um, then there were all these whiplash shifts that I was already talking about, territorial defense and deterrence until the fall of the wall, and then the switch to uh, expeditionary warfare and humanitarian intervention afterwards, and now we're going full circle. That also you know, was really difficult to digest for European nations struggling with their budgets yeah. in a time when you had economic recessions and things like that. And, and then finally... 
Um, there is the, the, the thing that people often underestimate, as which you just mentioned, is, is the development of technology. When you and I were 20 years old, um, most bits of iron that soldiers were given had no, no chips anywhere near them, <laughs> right? right? There were dumb, dumb pieces of metal. And, and so they tended to last long, they were easy to repair, and, and they, weren't, they, you know, they didn't take a PhD to operate, right? Today, the problem with most weapon systems is that they, are, they have you know, astonishing electronic um, technology, technology inside them, inside them, which practically becomes obsolete a day after it's issued, right? <laughs> And that has driven up the costs of technology and of and and of buying and maintaining modern armed forces in such a way that even the big three in Europe, the UK, France, and and Germany, and increasingly now Poland, find it very hard to maintain full spectrum forces. Right? Mm-hmm. That that is just a fact of technological life. Yeah, that's true. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security this week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Constanza Stelzenmiller from the Brookings Institution, and we're discussing European and German defense policies, uh, challenges and opportunities, and also uh, also NATO. Uh, I want to ask one difficult question before we press on with some other some other sp- uh, topics, specifically before we dive into Germany. And, and I think uh, it's worth discussing this because there's a lot of churn in the political world uh, in the European uh, Union. Uh, Inside both NATO and the EU, individual nations retain sovereign rights and responsibilities, even though they're part of the collective security construct. Uh, from your study of transatlantic security policy, how often do domestic policy issues inside individual countries bleed over into these partnered security organizations? In other words, how, how often does a domestic policy issue disrupt carefully crafted NATO or EU policy decisions? Do, do politicians purposefully put the NATO alliance or the European Union governing body on the horns of a dilemma just to make political hay for their own benefit to get elected or push a specific policy agenda? John, the simple answer to that is all the time, (laughs) everywhere, including in America, and it's happening right now. And we should come to talking about that as well. But that is only natural, frankly. I think let's take a step back for our listeners and just explain what the difference between the NATO alliance and the EU is in legal terms. The alliance, the NATO, the NATO alliance is an alliance of sovereign nations, right? So the secretary general of the alliance, currently the Norwegian Jens Stoltenberg, does not have the right to make decisions that are binding for the member states, right? And so everything, everything has to be decided with unanimity, always keeping in mind that in this alliance, especially any alliance that would have America in it, um, some animals, some members are more equal than others, right? <laughs> and that's, that's just a fact of political life, sure. right? But it's also possible, frankly, that sometimes the small ones gang up and say, no, we don't want to do this. And then the Americans find themselves hamstrung. Yeah. Right. Remember, remember the intervention to unseat Muammar Gaddafi because he had threatened his own population with genocide in 2011. Right. Where um, America wanted NATO to intervene and um, uh, half of NATO um, with the Germans in the lead said, we don't want to do that. We don't think that we that we have fully calculated the knock on effects of that. Um, as a, it, that actually, I was highly critical of Germany's uh, refusal to do that, but in the end, that turned out to be quite right. Um, anyway, that's a complicated example, and we should probably not not go too deeply into it. But the, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. So, I mean, just qu- very quickly, some examples that we could point to are uh, politics of domestic policies, and, yeah. and yes, absolutely. Sorry, that's what you were asking for. Um, uh, look, there are many. I mean, let's let's just take with what's take what's happening right now. Um, we have a an unprecedented U.S.-led Western effort to secre- to support a Ukraine that is valiantly defending itself against a full-scale Russian invasion. And just for people who don't, you know, hang on the news as obsessively as probably you or I do. Um, the Russians have been bombarding Kiev uh, again now for two nights straight. Um, uh, I think last night, 10 ballistic mit- missiles, all deflected, thank God, 
by by Allied air defenses. Um, but still, those you know the debris rains down on the city and damages apartments and sometimes kills people. Right, um, and in the current moment, we are in fact in a sort of political crunch time in several several time zones. Why is this? Because the Biden administration in Washington D.C. wants to. Um, decide on another supplemental of $61 billion to help tide Ukraine through the election next year and November 5th. Um, the Republican MAGA-led House is refusing to, to assent to that. And in fact, we have seen um, in the weeks before two continuing resolutions um, that were passed to prevent government shutdowns both of them without support for Ukraine. So clearly, um, the, the the Republicans, uh, the Republican leadership of the House is heading to a real showdown here, much to um, the dismay of the Senate Republicans who have been um, making um, Ukraine policy together with the Biden administration in a very um, bipartisan and very civilized manner. Um, that is a really, really dangerous moment, right? Because you're already seeing, you know, these, regardless of, I mean, we're already hearing now that, that the supplemental is unlikely to be passed before Christmas or the end of the year. There is another chance of doing it in January. But the thing to understand, again, for our listeners, is that kind of thing already has a political effect, right? right? Because it undercuts the credibility of the American part of this of this alliance to support Ukraine, and because it also it, it's seen as an encouragement by the Russians. If you if you look at Kremlin media and in fact at the at the things that, that come out of the, uh, the 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 Kremlin statements and declarations, they're already gloating, right? And seeing this as a as a tactical political win for the Kremlin, and saying and and threatening that that other parts of Europe will be next. I'm not sure. I, I don't think we have to go completely. Um, uh, you know. Uh, in, into a tailspin of dispersion over this, it would be for the Russians to attack NATO would be an entirely different ballgame. Yes. Right? That would be another world the day they do that. And I'm inclined to be hard-nosed about threats like that. But even the, just the fact that they're making those threats right, is a, a civilizational breach right? and is deeply, deeply concerning. Um, and it's frankly also encouraging authoritarians everywhere. So that's one way in which this is bleeding into, into NATO. The other aspect here is that the European Union has made a decision in June to um, offer membership to Ukraine and, and, and tiny Moldova and, uh, and to and a somewhat similar, not, not quite as forward-leaning invitation to the country of Georgia. Mm. And... The government heads of the European Union are meeting tomorrow, Thursday, and on Friday in Brussels to decide on opening this accession process, which, again, is going to, you know, this is not something that is done from one day to the next. It, uh, the, it, it requires significant reforms on both sides and would probably take years, if not more than a decade. But it is a really important sign of political support. And the, uh, the, the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, is currently threatening to veto this, the opening of accession negotiations and the funding, European funding for Ukraine, unless the European Union de-blocks um, billions of euros um, in funding that it had withheld from, from Hungary because of its repeated violations of, of rule of law. So on both sides of the Atlantic right now is, is crunch time for Ukraine and in directly or indirectly for NATO's role in supporting. Yeah, and and, uh, and Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, is still opposing Sweden's accession to NATO, uh, one of the NATO alliance members. Yes, so that's another another sort of in interesting aspect of the Russian full-scale invasion in February of last year is that suddenly two countries in Europe, which had been diehard neutrals, right. and had always said they would never join NATO, Finland and Sweden said, we've changed our minds, we want to join. Um, 
just by way of a footnote, both of those countries were in military terms part uh, members of the so-called Partnership for, for Peace, which allows sort of non-member countries that are friends of the alliance to assimilate their force generation and deployment practices to NATO practices. And so, frankly, they were NATO members in all that, right? But uh, the Finns uh, have become became members a few months ago. Um, the Swedes are being blocked by both Hungary and Turkey. Yep. I do think, though, that that this will that these are tactical blockages, and at some point, both Viktor Orban and Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the Prime Minister of Turkey, uh, will decide that it is no longer to their benefit to right. be, to be seen as blocking this. Yeah, so not- I don't think this is really. Um, I, I don't think this is a forever obstacle. Yeah, I, I also find it interesting that that uh, uh, Erdogan did not push for more concessions, even from the EU side of things. For I mean, they've been <laughs> they've been wanting to get into the European Union for a very long time, and I, I really thought he was going to push on that issue with the with the European Union membership uh, as part of his approval on the Sweden side of things. But but yeah, I digress. Well, we could it, spend yeah. a whole a whole show talking yeah. about this one topic. Yeah. Uh, I do want to push on well, maybe, to some other things. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, go sure. ahead. Go for it. Well, I just wanted to say for your listeners, um, there the, Turkey did want to become a member of the European Union, and then there were really protracted negotiations, which sort of ended in a dead end when it became clear that Turkey was becoming under Erdogan more and more authoritarian right. and more and more anti-Western. And so at this point, I'm inclined to think uh, if um, if Erdogan talks about that, he's doing it for the purpose of maximizing political capital, but he doesn't mean it because only only four democracies can be, can be taken into the European Union. Yeah. NATO doesn't have quite such standards. Um, it's taken in countries whose democratic standards were a bit sketchy uh, <laughs> when they joined, and Turkey was one of them. It was a military dictatorship, to be fair. So I want to take full Even advantage while I have you on, on the on the show with me. We've talked about kind of the NATO and, and EU structure. We've talked a little bit about kind of the uh, individual EU and NATO members uh, in Europe and, and domestic policy issues. Uh, but you you are German. Let's let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit about uh, about Germany's uh, challenges. Uh, take a deeper dive, deeper dive into how domestic politics in Germany impacts German foreign policy and national security decision making. Uh, Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz has been strongly in support uh, of Ukraine and Israel, frankly, uh, under the current crisis the, uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of Germany's national security policy? What are the core tenets of, of Germany's approach to foreign affairs, and how are you know internal domestic economic conditions impacting? national security decision-making in Germany right now. Absolutely. Sorry, I was just chuckling a little bit to myself because Olaf, just like John Olson, is a really, really good Minnesotan Norwegian <laughs> name, isn't it? Um, but the I, of course, have listened to Garrison Kilo many times and his jokes about Minnesota and Norwegian bachelors from, from Minnesota. But that's gone into the national um, and into the national folklore, I think, of America. But the um, the German situation is a very special one. I mean, Germany is the wealthiest economy in Europe. It is the, um, in many ways, the most powerful country in Europe, even though it doesn't have any nuclear weapons. And it is surrounded by nine neighbors, only two of whom are come even close in terms of, of prosperity and, and power, France and Poland. All the other ones are smaller. So we are already used to um, seeing deep integration um, of our economies and our military policies with our smaller neighbors. I think this might be interesting for your listeners to understand. So the Netherlands, who are to the northwest of, of Germany, uh, the, uh, the Dutch, have 100% integrated their army with the German army. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, 100%. And we have deep and close cooperations, bilateral cooperations, with with other neighbors. All of that is in a NATO framework, but but 100% is really remarkable. Also, unlike the United States, 100% of the German armed forces, all of them, are under NATO command. Only a very small segment of the, or relatively small segment, of US overall forces are um, operate under a NATO remit. Yeah. Um, I mean, for us, NATO is the be-all and end-all of our security policy. 
just just to just to make make you understand that. So um, we too, after 1989 and 90, especially as NATO and, and the EU continued to enlarge, increasingly, you know, had had the sense in Germany that after a Cold War existence of being one half of a very nervous country, you know, with the other half, East Germany and the communist bloc, um, that was equipped militarily for conventional deterrence of about three weeks until the onset of nuclear war. And when that happened, we were going to be a pile of steaming ashes um, because it was going to happen in the, in the skies over us. Um, we increasingly felt that our you know, security threats and, and challenges were very far away, right? Because we had been literally surrounded with a circle of allies and friends. And so it is only fair to say that we sort of over decades disinvested in our armed forces and in our security policy. And, and that really only changed after 9-11 a little bit, after the Iraq war a little bit. But, but we, so we had a very long way to go back to our um, very substantial Cold War capabilities when the Russians invaded Ukraine. And we woke up and said, oh, my God, we have to do something. Right? So two things happened after the Russian full-scale invasion. Um, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, gave a speech three days later on a, in a special session of the Bundestag where he said, this is a turning point in history. The English, the German word for that has since gotten gone into the English vernacular. It's Zeitenwende, which is German for turning point. And he said, everything in our security circumstances has changed. We need to adapt on every, all fronts. <laughs> and that had two, two key components. One was decoupling from Ru Russian fossil fuel imports. And the other one was modernizing our military. The Russian fossil fuel imports, actually, we actually did an, at an astonishing speed. Yeah. If you'd asked me to predict that we would buy, so this was, again, this was on February 27 of 22. Um, by April, we'd stopped buying Russian coal, which wasn't very important. Um, by September, we had stopped buying Russian oil. And we were going to stop buying Russian gas, which was the most important fossil fuel import, shortly thereafter. And then the Russians were the ones who, in uh, September, turned off the gas um, in order to, to impose political pressure on us. So we are now 100% decoupled from Russian fossil fuels. Um, and, and I'm not going to suggest that any listener should feel sorry for us because of this, because we shouldn't have been that dependent on, on, on Russian fossil fuels in the first place. But you know what? They were close and they were cheap. Yeah. And, and no German chancellor was going to resist German industry saying, um, no, we do not want to pay double the price for LNG from Qatar or from America. We're not going to do that. We're going to take the, the, the cheap gas from Russia, which is also why we built that Nord Stream 2 pipeline that mysteriously exploded. Um, we still don't quite know who did that. Right. Um, there was a lot of speculation about it. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. The the more complicated part of of this Zeitenwende of the Germans sort of you know revising their security policy um, has been the military part. It did actually write two pretty good security policy papers: a national security strategy. Um, which, given that it was a center-left government that wrote it, is, I think, a very decent piece of paper. Um, a very decent, I mean, it really lays out the, the threats and challenges very clearly and with no, you know, uh, no pussyfooting. Um, and it wrote a pretty sharp-edged China strategy as well. Hmm. Those two things are good, and they're appreciated in Washington. The really hard part is military reform. Um, and, and again, I had, the reason I mentioned earlier on that we didn't start out, you know, post-war life with armed forces, but had to stand them up in retrospect in 1956 when we joined NATO. And let's, again, just want to remind listeners of what that meant. 1956, that was 11 years after the end of World War II. Um, there were not that many German men left over. And the price for joining NATO in 1956 was Germany, West Germany standing up 12 divisions. 12 divisions meant half a million men. Oof. And you weren't going to make 18-year-olds officers, right? So you were going to have to re-recruit people who had served the Wehrmacht, right? So all of that, so, so for all of those reasons, right? Because the Germans didn't quite trust themselves, 
the, the, what we call the constitution of the armed forces, the, all the legal arrangements and the institutional arrangements around this reintroduction of armed forces was hedged about by civilian oversight um, and sort of very, very um, sort of complex balance of, uh, you know, checks and balances on the armed forces that de facto made it incredibly hard to change anything, right? Um, because th there were sort of so many arrayed built-in forces of inertia. And that is that together with the technology costs that I've already mentioned and the whipsawing um, effect of, of, you know, NATO policy shifts um, has been really difficult. And there's one other German special aspect here, which is that I mentioned earlier that, that our armed forces were told to guard the intra-German border, which was 1,700 miles long in the Cold War for three weeks, again, until the expected onset of nuclear war. So we were going to guard them on German territory, um, which meant using the German highways, German hospitals, and German munitions depots. Um, there, was, it was, there was nothing expeditionary about the whole thing. So no armed force had to go farther than the German one because we were so specialized. Mm. Um, when we were told to become expeditionary, we were told to get rid of conscription, to professionalize, and so on and so on. And so, in other words, the whipsawing aspect of repeated changes in NATO policy has arguably been sort of tougher and harder and broader for, for Germany than it has been for a number of other nations. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the issue. I will say I, um, it's, it's painful to look at sometimes, and it is... And sometimes you wonder whether we're going to get it straight in, you know, ever. But but I will say the change in mentality and the public mood, I think, is absolutely genuine. Mm. That's something I watch very closely, and I'm you know in touch with the military and with the policymakers, and that is not something that allies need to worry about. I think where we all need to become more creative is in in basically. Um, maximizing the capabilities that we have and getting rid of capability, capabilities that not every country in NATO needs. Mm. Let me give you an example, air defenses, right? Europe ought to have one unified air defense system, right? That would be very and smart. Frankly, <laughs> yeah, and frankly, I think if we had a unified air force, that would make a lot of sense as well, right? To have, to have 27 different EU air forces or, or European air forces in NATO to me, um, strikes me as uh, an enormous waste of capabilities and of, and of budgetary assets. Well, I, I, it's my understanding that the Nordic countries are actually moving in that direction to really kind of share yes. uh, air defense responsibilities from an, from an Air Force perspective. Uh, yes. For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Constanza Stelzenmüller from the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. We're discussing NATO, European, and German defense policy challenges and opportunities. Uh, so, Dr. Stelzenmüller, we, we've covered a wide range of topics today. NATO and EU security policy. We've taken a look at uh, Germany's role in both organizations and domestic policy impacts on national security decision-making. I'm going to ask you a hard question now. Uh, we, we broadcast from, from Minnesota. We're in the heart of the American Midwest. Uh, why should people living in the American Midwest, or frankly anywhere in America, care about how European Union national security policy is developed and implemented, or, or about NATO defense policy? I mean, it's always over there, right? No, nothing ever happens here in the right. Why should Americans right. care about Germany's role in both organizations and the challenges that the Schultz government faces at, at this crucial time in world affairs? Sure. I think that is a totally legitimate question and one that we ought to be able to answer at all times. Um, and, and if we're not, you know, that's on us. But I do think I have an answer that I think is, is a good one, but it does kind of depend, if you're an American, on what your, uh, what your outlook on, on the world is on foreign policy. And as we know, there are groups in, um, in both in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in the country um, that have uh, either think America should have a much more restrained role in, 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 in the world, be at best an offshore balancer, or in fact should you know, stay at home and mind its knitting, right? Um, and then there are the uh, folks on, on, on mostly the right end of the spectrum um, who think that sort of globalization, in other words, the growing economic interdependence of the world is something akin to a false consciousness, right? It's something that, that America um, can just check out of. 
Um, that that it's it's hard to explain to that particular group of people, I think. But I'm going to try and make the argument anyway. Uh, and I will say that I, I, I do believe that economic independent interdependence is a thing. Um, and it is a thing even for a superpower like America. And, and in fact, it constrains, constrains the agency and ability of even a superpower to make inter independent decisions. Here is why. I'll make it very simple. Um, a ton of cheap American labor comes from beyond America's borders, especially its southern borders. Right, A ton of cheap American consumer goods come from very far away, and especially from China. Right, uh, the, the nation of China holds American government bonds in very, very large quantities. Like two and, and a half trillion, I think, maybe something like that. Is that right? Or is that too I, much? Again, trillion? I'm bad at numbers, but I'm sure that's true. <laughs> um, you know, that is, all of those things are what I mean when I talk about economic interdependence. If that if those three things were not the case, consumer goods, agricultural goods, um, would be much, much more expensive in America. And that would have a significant effect on American uh, policy costs across the board. So yes, America is a superpower, but it profits immensely from trading with the world and, and getting tr trade goods and services from the world and exporting to the world. So here's, here's the thing, under those conditions and faced with a China that as the former um, defense secretary, Robert Gates said in a recent foreign affairs article, a China that has um, distinct adversarial qualities and at the same time is developed economically, socially, scientifically, and militarily in ways that the Soviet Union never was, right. Right? and that no other adversary of America ever was. Um, that, is, that is a situation where allies are useful. And it's also a fact that, and I was alluding to this earlier, that America is trades deeply with Europe. Right? We invest in each other. America invests in Europe, Europe invests in America. We create jobs in America, you create jobs in Europe. And the, what has been so fascinating for me as a longtime observer of the transatlantic relationship is that the allied support operation for Ukraine um, has been different from any other post-war allied operation in, in the following way. We made a decision very early on that NATO was actually not going to be the framework in which we were going to act. We were not going to put boots on the ground, and America was not going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. When, when Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, comes to Germany to, to talk about support, he goes to a U.S. airbase that, the, that houses American troops working with NATO. But these are not NATO conversations, They're, but they are conversations with NATO allies. Instead, what we have done as allies, Europeans and Americans, to help Ukraine and to constrain Russia is something that I would call, this is going to sound a little academic, but bear with me, <laughs> counter-weaponizing economic interdependence. In other words, we have made use of the fact that Russia also is to a significant degree dependent on its interrelations uh, with, with the world. By, but with the help of sanctions and exports controls. Have those sanctions been perfect? No, but they have done real damage to the Russian economy. They have been a constraint. And that is where the Europeans actually are, if I may say that, a peer power. In military terms, we are in no way comparable to what America can offer. Can offer. In economic terms, as a single market and as a regulatory power, we have we pack a huge punch and we provide genuine leverage to american power and that is why this biden administration which understands that has worked so closely not just with the europeans whom it works with at nato but also with the european union itself right which unlike nato is actually an a an, a supranational entity with its own regulatory powers um, hence, the really good relationship between President Biden and the, the president of the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen. 
that's that's a remarkable development. And I will finish with this thought, John, which is that this has been a truly remarkable, um, very durable cooperation, which has had remarkable impact. In a conflict with China, which might be kinetic, might be military, might be in the, in the Indo-Pacific, but is present in our lives in Europe and in America in the form of economic and trade competition and regulatory competition every day already, we are a really important friend to have for America. And conversely, Europe needs America. I would, in fact, go so far as to say, I don't think that either we Europeans or you Americans can handle the the economic part of competing with China, of strategic competition with China on our own. Yeah. We need each other for that. That's true. Yeah, so this show that, uh, was, that was a little extended. No, no, that's that's that, great. That made it clear why yeah. I think Americans should care. Yeah. Uh, on this show, we have concentrated throughout the whole last three years uh, on on looking at the tools of national power and and how those tools are used: diplomacy, the power of sharing information or not sharing information, military and economic power. And, and what I just heard from you really was that the collective power of those tools of national power amongst allies and 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 close partnerships. Uh, has an outsized uh, effect rather than just individual nations at work. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Dr. Stelzenmuller, we're coming into the end of the show here. Uh, I always try to give uh, my guests sort of the, the last word. Uh, we've covered a lot of different issues with the transatlantic partnership, both on the NATO side and 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 the EU side of things. Uh, talked a little bit about German uh, security policy. Uh, what didn't I ask you today that I that I should have asked you? What What are the, th- the final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners today as we close out our discussions? I want to say you asked incredibly in-depth questions, um, very educated questions. Um, and if the readers are still tuned in, I'm also, the listeners, I mean, uh, I'm also very impressed with them, right? This is a very, very substantive discussion. But I do want to, I, I, I want to end by making something clear, which is, and, I, and I'm not just speaking for myself here. Um, I think Ukraine and Europe, uh, to put it very bluntly, would have been toast without American leadership and without the Biden administration's leadership after the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I have heard so many European politicians and policymakers say that in many European countries, and I also deeply believe that myself. So my last word to you is very simply, thank you. Dr. Constanza Stelzenmuller, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, I know you're the you're the director and Fritz Stern chair of the Center on the United States and Europe uh, at, at Brookings. Are there any uh, interesting programs coming up at Brookings in in your area of expertise that listeners might be able to tune into remotely? Um, well, we are actually in the process of developing both a podcast and a and a new newsletter. So stay tuned at the Center on the U.S. and Europe. My American colleague, Steve Pfeiffer, who actually is a past ambassador to Ukraine, has just written a fascinating paper on on the US and and, and NATO and Ukraine, which is truly worth reading because it unravels the whole history of the relationship, but makes really constructive suggestions on where to take it now. Because as you know, the question of of Ukraine's NATO membership will also be on, on the docket at the Washington anniversary summit in this coming July. So that's that's coming out either today or tomorrow and is really worth reading. You'll find it on our website. And we will, of course, be doing anniversary programming and programming around the, the July summit. Um, and around that, we will be doing lots of work on uh, European elections. Um, and, and some of us, of course, like me, will be trying to explain the American elections to European readers and listeners. We'll we'll be trying so to figure out the American elections here in America too. Uh, do you have any any uh, things that you are getting ready to publish yourself that we can uh, access on the Brookings website? Um, well, I am right now editing an English version of an essay on the elections. I don't know whether that's so much of interest, but the and 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 I need to write my monthly column again. But um, Something that listeners might find interesting is a long essay that I published in August, which was called The Return of the Enemy, mm. and which the, argues fundamentally that as we, we, we now think of our world paradigm as one of strategic competition, right? 
where um, we're no longer assuming that everybody wants to become like us, but that in fact we have significant competition and rivalry and friction with authoritarian countries around the world. And the argument that I make there is that the missing link in that in, in that description of the world is adversaries who think of us as enemies, yeah, enemies with whom you can't negotiate. And I think that that sadly um, is true of Russia in the case of Ukraine. They think of Ukraine as an enemy with whom negotiation is unacceptable, except on their terms. And I think I fear that they that they think of us. Westerners in similar terms, which is profoundly disturbing. It is that 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 is a somber note to finish our show, but I think it's a a, a, a very accurate assessment of the situation. Uh, Dr. Constanza Stelzenmuller from the Brookings Institution in Washington D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Thank you. It was a huge pleasure, and thank you to all the, all of the listeners who hung in there until the end. And folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finisher to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.